0: So we've been telling you about Walters for brunch the last few days. But did you know that Walters also is open for lunch Monday through Friday? Walters opens at noon for lunch, midday baseball watching and even the occasional European soccer match. So if you find yourself around the ballpark during the day, make sure you walk on over to Walters.
1: Walters outdoor deck is the perfect place to be with friends before, during and after the game.
2: We're driven by the search for better.
3: Melanson well, leading forward a bit as he looks in. A series of signs with the runner at second. And now he's to the belt. Here's the kick. Here's the pitch. Swinging a fly ball to deep center. Grisham going back. Still back. Way back. And it's over. His head off his glove. Off the wall. Barrera around third. He's on his way to the plate. He will score. And a curly W is in the books. It's a
0: Welcome to Natchat for Monday, July 19, 2021, Part 2, along with Nationals insider Mark Zuckerman of MassInsports.com. I'm Al Galdi, host of the Al Galdi Podcast. I think we're ready for another All-Star break. Can we have another break off the events of the last three days? Because it feels like we just played an entire first half of a season over the last few days with everything that transpired in a series that will never be forgotten if you're a Nationals fan This three-game set against the Padres, Starling Castro gets placed on administrative leave. You have the return of F.P. Santangelo. You have the Nats giving up 24 runs in a 24-8 loss. You have a game suspended due to gunfire outside of Nationals Park. But you also ultimately get an 8-7 walk-off win over the Padres at Nats Park on Sunday afternoon. The Nats needed that win in the worst of ways. Maybe principal among them was the fact that the Nats had lost six consecutive games, and it was a wild game. It was a crazy game, but it ultimately ends up being a win, and in a lot of ways, a feel-good win, given the principles involved in terms of the heroes of the game. But man, what a last few days for the Nats, Mark.
1: It's been pretty crazy, Al. This ranks up there with the, as eventful of a weekend that I can remember them ever having, and you say the Nats needed this one. They did. Nats Park needed this one as well. The range of emotions during the course of the day were pretty wild. And uh, when Juan Soto homered to give him the lead in the bottom of the eighth, and you thought, "Okay, here it is, everybody was really perked up. And it felt like this is going to be a big moment for them to then go and blow that lead, but then still come back and somehow win. I think at that point, everyone was just emotionally exhausted. But if they had lost that game in that fashion to lose their seventh straight and given everything else that's happened, it would have been very draining on everyone, the team and the fans and everybody else associated with the organization so that they were able to emerge from all that victorious. I do think it, it's a big emotional lift for them. And they finally got through this stretch, this brutal stretch against the NL West. They can finally go play some other teams. The final tally against the Dodgers, the Padres, and the Giants this year, they went 5-16 and 16 against them, and they were on the verge of being 4-17. and 17. They're 38 and 33 against everyone else they've faced this year. And so if you're looking for silver linings and looking for a reason to believe in this team, that may be it. They just got through far and away the toughest portion of their schedule. I'm not going to say they survived it because they really were banged up and lost a lot of games and lost some ground because of it. But it now finally eases up the rest of the way they face mostly division teams and a couple other opponents, most of which are not contending teams. And maybe that finally gets them on track.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think we know enough to know the Nats are not a great team this season, but that doesn't mean that they can't be good enough to make the postseason. It doesn't mean that they can't be good enough to win a National League East that clearly is very winnable. Oh, by the way, while the Nats do come out of this weekend still six games behind the division leading Mets, the Mets over the weekend put both Jacob Degrom and Francisco Lindor on the ten day injured list. The Mets are very vulnerable. There's no reason why the Nats can't ultimately win this division. And coming up here now three-game set against the Marlins, followed by a three-game set at the Orioles, followed by a four-game set at the Phillies, followed by three games against the Cubs, then four more games against the Phillies. So a lot of beatable opponents are on the way to the point that you just made. Well, a lot of different people with whom we could start with this victory on Sunday. I'd actually like to begin with the man who authored the walk-off hit. This really is something else to me What is going on here with Alcides Escobar? And it's not to say that, like, he's been lights out, game in, game out, because he hasn't been. His numbers have actually kind of calmed down a little bit here. But he has become an everyday player for the Nats. I mean, it's remarkable. The Nats just traded for him just a few weeks ago, cash considerations to the Kansas City Royals. He's become their everyday second baseman. He's become their everyday leadoff batter. And Alcides Escobar in this game ends up having a one-out walk-off single off the Padres' closer, the ex-nat, Mark Melanson, on a 1-2 pitch. And that was a well-struck ball to center field. Escobar also hits a big homer in the game, a one-out solo shot in a Nationals three-run eighth inning for his first homer as a nat. He had a walk in the game as well. He, in this series, goes 5 of 15 with a homer, four singles into a walk. He has a batting average of .296, on-base percentage of .333, slugging percentage of .444, over 59 plate appearances with the Nats. It was a rally off Melanson that was authored by the bottom of the Nats' bats in terms of, you know, Tres Pereira and Alcides Escobar and Victor Robles. But to see Escobar with that walk-off hit, man, a guy who hadn't played in the majors since 2018, I'm happy for this guy. That was really cool to see on Sunday.
1: Yeah, and you can tell what it meant to him. And now he feels like he's a part of this team all of a sudden. And, and who would have thought that? I mean, even when they picked him up, it was a move of desperation when they were out of infielders. They had already had to play Alex Avila at second base one day. They had to call up a kid from deep in their farm system for one day and then sent him down after that. And then ultimately they get Alcides Escobar, who hadn't been in the big leagues in three years, had bounced around. He went to Japan, it was at AAA with the Royals. And all of a sudden, he's the leadoff hitter on a team that is trying to contend. And the team has embraced him. He has been re-energized, I think, by all of this. They really like what he does. And I'll tell you, that was a quality at bat in the ninth. I mean, that wasn't just a got lucky kind of thing. He was fouling off tough pitches. The ball he drove was legit, like you said. I don't even think Trent Grisham realized how well he hit that ball and couldn't recover in time to get to it. The home run was to the opposite field. I mean, this is not a power hitter, typically. So... You can't say enough but good things about him. I don't know if he ends up as their everyday second baseman leadoff hitter for the rest of the season and what that means for the team, if that's the case. But for now, they need him. And he has come through far more than they could have imagined he would ever come through for them.
0: We've been critical of Mike Rizzo and the farm system and the lack of depth, but Rizzo with this Midas touch when it comes to getting guys who look done, and then these guys come to the dance and the guys excel. Austin's Escobar is the latest in line. I mean, Gerardo Parra, Drubal Cabrera, Josh Harrison, who, by the way, had a very nice series. And Escobar has just been so much more than you ever could have realistically hoped for. So full props to him for the job he's done, and especially for the job that he did on Sunday. Now, you mentioned opposite field. Juan Soto, we know when he's right, is going oppo. And oppo, he went in this game on Sunday afternoon. Now the kick and the pitch. Swing and a fly ball to deep left. Moving back
3: on pro Profar, the warning track at the wall.
0: Soto, a one-out, full count, go-ahead, opposite field homer to left field in that Nationals three-run eighth inning for a 7-6 lead. Soto hitting the homer despite having been down to the count at 1.12. Also benefiting, let's be honest, from a borderline strike that got called as ball three. But whatever. You know, when you're Juan Soto, you're going to get calls like those. You should capitalize on them. And he did. Soto connects with the homer. He, in the game, also has a walk. He has a one-out first pitch opposite field double to left field in the Nationals' four-run third inning. He has a one-out first pitch single in the bottom of the six as well. You combine that with what he did in the 24-8 game on Friday night, four or five with two homers, two singles, four RBI. He was not good in the middle game in this series, but the Zuckerman theory of could the home run derby fix Juan Soto, it's early, yes. The sample size is small, yes, but I would say so far, so very good, three homers in three games for Soto since the
1: break, and the key, Al, is that he believes it made a difference. This isn't just us joking about it; he actually believes it made a difference that going there and trying to hit the ball in the air and actually thinking about elevating baseballs and and yes it's an exhibition and in a the best hitters' park in America, but it kind of helped reset his mind.
0: You can tell. <laughs> I just feel so much better now. I
3: was
1: thinking about it, and it really helped me a little bit. Get that feeling, how to put the ball in the air and everything. He has been a different hitter since coming back from Colorado. He knows it. He admits it. The team sees it. He is feeling good. He's got the swagger back again. And that's a good thing when Juan Soto is feeling that and... The opposite has come true again. And after he crossed the plate, I don't know if they showed it on TV, after he crossed the plate on the home run this time, he went into the dugout and he ordered chicken salad instead of tuna salad.
0: There you go. That's what you do. That's exactly what you do. And, you know, you mentioned it only matters if you believe it. That's another Costanza-ism. It's not a (laughs) lie (laughs) if you believe it. So it's not a roost that the home run derby fixed your swing if you believe it. And he believes it.
3: Jerry, just remember, it's not a lie if you believe it.
0: Great to see that. Uh, and, you know, look, we thought that that was going to be the end of the game, him hitting that homer. Unfortunately, it was not. But whatever. That was a huge spot in that game. I mentioned Josh Harrison. I do want to credit him. You know, Harrison's numbers had dipped for a while. He's, he's come back out of it here a bit. And he had himself a really nice series. Now, look, he's not a left fielder. I think at times it's very spotty with him in left field. But the hitting plays. And the hitting sure played on Sunday. So he was actually the Nats starting third baseman on Sunday. He goes three of five with a couple of doubles and a single. So really nice to see that from Josh Harrison. I know right now, look, no Kyle Schwarber, no Starling Castro, no Yaden Gomes. Davies is trying to piecemeal things together. So you're taking what you can get, and Harrison being one of those few guys who can play multiple positions, uh, he's going to be out there a bunch. So very good to see him in a good place right now offensively.
1: He's a pro. I think that's the best way you can put it. He'll do whatever you need him to do. He's going to give you quality at-bats. It's maybe not going to happen every single time. He's not a star player, but... He's a pro who knows what to do in the right situations. He's going to give you his best. And he plays with swagger as well. On one of those doubles, I think it was the second double in the eighth inning, he did the, the Dion high step in the second base again. I love it. He, he has funds with fans. He has funds with other players on the team. A joy to watch, and he has uh, and expresses joy playing baseball, and he has meant a lot to them. Ideally, he wouldn't have to be in the position that he's in, batting fifth and playing left field regularly for them, But this is where we are right now, and he has been critical to their success, and the hope would be that as the rest of the season plays out, they get him some help so that he doesn't have to be in that spot all the time, and then he can really thrive by being the sort of of jack-of-all-trades that they wanted him to be all along.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's been up and down, but the guy's got an on-base percentage of three fifty eight on the season. I mean, most guys would kill for something like that. So really nice job by Josh Harrison on Sunday and over the course of the series. I mean, game in, game out, Harrison
3: here it comes swing a line drive shallow center racing in is Grisham has to play on a bounce base hit throw home as Stevenson tries to score one hop throw the sweep tag not in time Head first dive he crosses the plate and the Nationals lead four to nothing Trace Pereira delivers with a two out single hard a second and the Nationals keep the line moving what an inning with two
0: outs We know that the Nats are in a tough spot right now at the catching position. Jan Gomes remains on the 10-day injured list. Alex Avila remains on the 10-day injured list. It was Rene Rivera who was the Nationals' starting catcher in each of the first two games in this series. Rene Rivera, with whom the Nats agreed on a Major League contract this past Friday. It's his age 37 season. He is with now his 10th Major League team in the Washington Nationals. Tres Barrera was back out there as a starting catcher on Sunday. And Tres Barrera ends up having himself a nice game offensively. Two-out first pitch, ribby single in the Nats' four-run third. A two-out intentional walk in the bottom of the fifth. You know, I don't know how many people would have ever expected that this season, that Tres Pereira gets intentionally walked, but that's what you have when the pitcher's batting. And then a one-out single on an 0-2 pitch in that Nationals' one-run ninth inning. A very key spot in that inning. Tresperera ends up coming through. Now, I think defensively right now, there are real issues for the Nationals at catcher. What we saw in the top of that ninth inning with Brad Hand giving up the run, I don't know if this is on Barrera to any degree or not, but the Nats allowing three uncontested stolen bases in that inning. We've seen the Nats do this before, allow uncontested steals in later innings. I couldn't stand seeing that, especially with the pinch runner Jorge Mateo basically being gifted third base. But I did want to spotlight Barrera because he did a nice job offensively in the game.
1: He's done a very nice job offensively, and I think to the extent that he deserves to play a little bit more. I don't know that for now, if if these are their two catchers, I don't know that Rene Rivera clearly is the better option on a daily basis than Trace Barrera. Neither one's going to be the everyday catcher, but maybe split at 50-50 for now. I've got to believe Alex Avila is close to coming back. I still don't know how he's not back yet, but Barrera has done a nice job given what they've asked him to do. Defensively, though, you are seeing the difference that Jan Gomes makes, both in throwing out runners, but even more than that, just I think in calling the games. I mean, who knows for sure, but I do wonder how much of the home runs that were given up in this game, some of the approaches to some of the hitters, how much a veteran catcher like Jan Gomes would make a difference. Somebody who knows these pitchers, not somebody who's just learning them on the fly like that. You know, that could be something. Like you, I wanna I want to spotlight the uncontested stolen bases. It drove me crazy. I know it was driving you crazy. I asked Davey about it afterwards, and he said, When you have your closer in there like that, you know, and you're up a run, your focus is just for him to get outs. It really is. I mean, we got, you know, we got uh, two outs. You know, we need one more out. We just want him to get focus on outs and not worry about the runner. You know, I've said this before. You start worrying about the runner over there, and you lose focus on what you're trying to do to the hitter. And that's all well and good, but they gifted them that run. By just letting Mateo take two bases off them, it put him in a position where all it took was a little bloop hit to score the tying run. It all it would have taken as a wild pitch to score the tying run. And it's exactly what happened. They didn't beat Brad Hand with hits. They beat him with a walk, two gifted stolen bases, and a bloop single. And that's how, why the game was tied and why they had to play a bottom of the ninth. And I don't get it. I don't like that. You can't tell me that a big league pitcher is that thrown off if he's just paying a little attention to a runner or that a first baseman is going to be that out of position if he's holding the runner on instead of playing off the back. I don't understand it, but he gave his answer for it, and it sounds like that is his strategy. And we see other teams do it as well. I just didn't like it. He's the tying run, and you're making a situation where instead of a, an extra base hit to, to tie the game, all he needs is a bloop hit to tie the game. That's exactly what happened.
0: It's lunacy to me, okay? Jorge Mateo can run. He was a Padres pinch runner. He came into the game off the one-out walk of Victor Caratini, and he's Handed 180 feet like that. There's no reason for that. And it's so funny because what is like one thing the Nats have done exceptionally well this season control the running game. Now, I know it's different now because Gomes is out, Avila is out, but it's like that's one thing you've actually done really well this season. We've seen this happen even when the likes of Gomes and Avila are out there. It's very strange. I don't like it. And to this thing of the closer should only focus on pitching, if it's a rookie closer or something, maybe Brad Hand's a veteran. This is part of playing the position of pitcher is dealing with runners on base. Like, you're a reliever. You're used to that. You're supposed to deal with that. I could not stand that in that inning. Now, look, Hand's got to get outs. It, it was weird with Hand because he had three strikeouts. He had that huge strikeout of Manny Machado, but he also had a hard time putting guys away. I mean, Trent Grisham with the game-tying ribby single, that comes on a 1-2 pitch. You know, uh, Hand ends up issuing three walks in that inning, one of which, yes, was intentional. Well, before we do more on the bullpen, we should talk about the starter for this game. It was a Max Scherzer game. You know, this is another thing that kind of gets lost in this game because of everything else that ended up happening. So Max was kind of so-so. Uh, four runs in seven innings. He gave up four hits, two homers and two singles. He issued three walks. He did have eight strikeouts. I mean, by no means was he like a mess out there or anything like that. You know, he, he begins a game. He strikes out the side in a perfect top of the first. to say, all right, here we go. This is going to be one of those days on which, you know, Max is marching around the mound and going deep into the game and registering a double-digit total of strikeouts. But then comes some problems. He tosses a scoreless top of the second, yes, but he in that inning issues back-to-back two-out walks of Eric Hosmer and Jerickson Profar. Then we see the curse of the fourth inning for Max, at least against the Padres, rear its ugly head. Three runs given up in the top of the fourth. The big blow that went out three-run homer by Eric Hosmer. Remember, it was in Max's last outing, the 9-8 loss at the Padres July 8th. He gives up seven runs in the fourth inning in that game. He then tosses a scoreless top of the fifth, but he still issues another walk in that inning, a one-out four-pitch walk at Trent Grisham, then gives up a run in the top of the seventh on a leadoff homer by Jerickson Profar. Again, it's not that Max was bad, but, you know, it wasn't necessarily dominant Max like we're used to seeing. He did give the Nats some length. They needed that, yes. But, you know, he still kind of looks a little off here since he's
1: come back. I mean, here's the story of the start in my mind. He gave up four hits in seven innings. That's nothing, four hits. But the problem is all four of those runners scored. And they scored because of the two home runs that he gave up. And we know Max, as he says, he's a fly ball pitcher. He's going to give up home runs. The solo shots he can live with, the three-run shot, is what kills him. And that's what happened. And they both in this game came on cutters. And that's a pitch that's usually very good for him. It's what he uses against lefties to try to jam them. And he was a little bit stunned by that, why that happened twice in this game. That's not a pitch he usually would give a home run off of. It's usually off a fastball. And I think he gave some credit to Eric Hosmer, especially for the first one and Profar for the second one. But, you know, he's going to go back to the drawing board and look at that one. But it's, it's so amazing with Max, like he can look great and he did look great for a lot of the start and still end up not having a great finishing line because he gave up four runs because all it takes is a couple mistakes. His mistakes are big mistakes. They're not little mistakes. They don't nickel and dime him. He's not giving up the bloop single to give up runs. He's giving up the three run bomb. And that's unfortunately just kind of the way it is with him. Now, the Padres are a really good lineup. I want to give them credit. What I saw from them this weekend and what I saw from the last weekend, in addition to all the power they have, I'm so impressed with their ability just to put the bat on the ball, extend at bats, find the holes. They're really good at it. This is an excellent team. And there's a reason that they're in the race along with the Dodgers and the Giants. So I want to give them a lot of credit. But Max has got to be a little better than this on a day when they needed him to be even better than this. And at times he he was better. He looked really good at times. But you got to finish. You got to avoid that big, one big blow that can cost you with runners on base. And that didn't happen in this game.
0: Are you at all bothered or perturbed or disturbed by the fact that this is now five starts since he came off the IL? The first three starts, he was good, but he didn't last very long. The fourth start was that start in which he unraveled at San Diego. And now the fifth start was this start. We haven't had a single true dominant ace-like, Cy Young-like outing from Max since he came back. And it's a high bar. I, I recognize that. But I don't know. To me, he just he's still not himself since he came off the I.O.
1: Here's what I'll say to that. His next start is going to be against the Orioles next weekend. If it happens against them, then there's a problem. If he's back to being the real Max in that start, I think everything's okay. I think he was facing some tough competition. I think his schedule, you know, got, got screwed up a little bit. I think it was a bizarre game in San Diego before the All-Star break. You know, you can talk about the sticky stuff, but like I said the last time, and I'll say it again here, at times he looked fantastic. That first inning was electric. His stuff was on point. So I think if that was the issue here, we'd be seeing it consistently throughout a start that he's struggling with his command, and he was not struggling with it early on. So give me one more. Let me see how he does against the Orioles before I make that evaluation. He hasn't been up to his Max Scherzer standards, I'll admit, for a few starts now, but I'm going to attribute some of that to the competition that he's faced.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's going to start affecting his trade value, Mark.
1: Okay, so we got (laughs) to We're not going there, Al. Come on.
0: We got to keep that trade value up. All right, with the bullpen, hey, it was nice to see Daniel Hudson and Brad Hand. You almost forgot that they were on the team with uh, how little they've pitched here lately. But neither guy was that good. The Nats' bullpen really was bad in this series. I mean, yes, the numbers get skewed by what happened on Friday night, but even in game two of the series, four Nats relievers in that 10-4 loss combined to allow four runs, three earned in three and two-thirds innings. Struggles for Kyle Finnegan and Sam Clay. And then on Sunday, the varsity is on display and neither guy really does well. Daniel Hudson gives up two runs, one earned in the top of the eighth. You did have the fielding error by Jordy Mercer, but then the one-out two-run homer by Manny Machado. And then what we talked about with Brad Hand. So look, I mean, the bullpen has been leaned on way too much. I think we all understand that. But I, I think like with the bullpen, we have to say, OK, if the starting pitching is going well, the bullpen can certainly be good enough. We saw that earlier this season. But this is certainly not a bullpen that's good enough to carry you or to lead the way. And I think we've seen enough of that over the last few weeks.
1: Well, so here's the thing with those two guys. Neither one had pitched in a long time. Hudson hadn't pitched in 10 days. Hand hadn't pitched in 13 days. And there was probably some rust there. Now, This is where I always think it's a fascinating question. When you go through a losing streak like they were in, and the All Star break added to it as well, do you throw your best relievers just to get them to work, even though you're losing? And sometimes they'll do that. But sometimes you're saying, well, if I pitch him tonight while we're trailing by three or four runs, then what if the next two nights we need him? And now he's not available on the third night. It's an interesting calculation you have to make as a manager about how to use them. I think they were rusty. That's what struck me. I mean, Hudson was throwing 99, so his arm felt great. He just grooved a fastball to Machado and gave up a bomb on that one, and the first runner reached because of an error on Jordy Mercer. You know, in Han's case, that's his first blown save in a long time. I think it was 16 in a row he had converted. So sort of like what you're asking with Max, let me see them the next time out and see if this happens again, then it's a problem. If not, this was a blip, and maybe they were just a little rusty from having not pitched in a while, but there's no question. They need Daniel Hudson and Brad Hand to be lights out if they're going to go anywhere because the formula was playing itself out the way it's supposed to in this game. Get seven great innings from Max Scherzer, then Hudson and Hand to close it out and everything should be fine. And unfortunately, this turned into a way more complicated victory than that.
0: Yeah, I mean, if the Nats were losing by a substantial margin or just losing period in this game, you were staring right down the barrel at Brad Hand not pitching in this series, just like Brad Hand didn't pitch at all in the last series before the break, the three game sweep at the Giants. And I I talked about that. I was like, you know, I, I know there wasn't like a specific spot at which you should say Davey should have fired the Brad Hand bullet in that Giants series, but it's like he's your best reliever, at least in theory. He should be out there at some point in a series against the major league leading Giants and then in another series against a really good team of the Padres. And you almost had it to where he didn't pitch in either series. I I just think that's a problem. I, I think it's something you have to look at as a manager and say, okay, what can I do here to use this guy more? I know we get on Davey for using guys too much, but it feels like with Brad Hand, you almost have the opposite problem where he's not used enough. Like if he's really your best guy then you know, lean on him a little more. And um, I don't know, I feel like we haven't seen enough of that here, but he wasn't particularly good on Sunday. That is true.
1: Well, you know what the best thing they can do to try to avoid that happening again? Take a lead. Hold a lead in the late innings, and then you have to use them. That's been the problem. They haven't been in a position to lead games late, and so that's why they sat for so long.
0: Yeah, but I think there also should be a feeling of I can use him even if I don't have the lead. And I don't think there's enough of that with Davey, with Hand. We've seen Davey do it with other guys. That's a thing. We know Davey's not against doing that. But for whatever reason, with Hand, and maybe it's coming from Hand. Maybe Hand's one of these guys. You know, Melanson has this reputation. Where Melanson's a different pitcher if it's not a save situation. We kind of saw that on Sunday. I don't know if Hand's like that or not. But Davey doesn't seem to like to use Hand in non-traditional closer situations.
1: True, and by the way, did you notice that Jace Tingler used his closer on the road in a tie game, in the ninth inning? What we were asking David to do with Hand a week ago in San Diego—well, how'd it work out? He took the loss, so I don't know what the right answer is anymore.
0: Well, I mean, I think that was the right decision; it was the wrong execution. By the way, Jace Tingler—a lot of people made fun of that managerial hire. Like, who the heck is this guy? He's doing a nice job with the Padres. I, I, I give him credit. I, I think they—they've got a good thing going there with San Diego. Well, finally, the schedule softens, like we said. The Nats have game one of a three-game series against the Miami Marlins at Nationals Park Monday night at 7.05. I said to you as we were wrapping up our show on Saturday night, can we please have a peaceful, tranquil Sunday? We really did not end up getting that. I'm going to ask for that again. Can we have a peaceful, tranquil Monday night? Can we just have like a 4-3 game, okay? Nats 4, Marlins 3 a run-of-the-mill, you know, middle-of-the-season kind of baseball game. Nothing crazy happens. There's no wacky transaction before the game. You know, God forbid nothing is happening outside of Nationals Park during the game. Just a normal Monday. Can we have that, please?
1: Well, you're going to have to ask Mr. John Lester if he can cooperate <laughs> with that because it's going to require a decent start from Mr. Lester to help make that dream come true, Al. And I don't know how much we can count on that right now. Look, the Marlins are not playing well this should be an opponent that he can go out and have a decent start, certainly better than we've seen from him. He needs to set the tone. Scherzer going seven on Sunday. It's the first time they had anybody go seven in June 24th by Joe Ross. 20 games since a starter went seven. They don't need seven from John Lester. They need five. Give him five innings and three runs or less and give him a chance to win. Hopefully the bats continue to hit and they do have a nice, easy game. But I, I'll tell you what, this week, and I hate to say things like this because I don't think it's – it's not fair to the opposition because these are big league teams they're facing. But you got six with the Marlins and the Orioles. They got to go five and one minimum. For where they are right now, I feel like that has to be a five and one week if not six and zero. And that's a tough thing to ask of a team that's still really banged up.
0: It is. Look, we've seen the Nats beat up on bad teams. But, you know, we also saw the Nats say split with the Arizona Diamondbacks earlier this season. Like, you know, you just don't know with this stuff. Um, and especially with Lester. I mean, the game is starting at 7.05 on Monday night. It may not end until 7.05 Tuesday morning, uh, but the way John Lester has gone here. So we shall see. But excellent to see the Nats win on Sunday. Great job by the Nats fighting it out and coming through with the win. You tell us what you think. Hit us up on Twitter at Nats underscore chat. You can email the podcast as well, NatsChatPodcast at gmail.com. All Nationals radio highlights on Nats Chat are courtesy of 106.7 The Fan. A reminder, if you don't already subscribe to the podcast, please consider subscribing. Uh, it costs you nothing. And uh, if you have the time and this doesn't take much time, please give the podcast a five-star rating and just write like a one-sentence review saying how much you like the podcast. Those things, uh, I know they can sound kind of silly, but they actually help out the podcast quite a bit. We appreciate all of you listening. We appreciate all of the, su- the support. For Mark Zuckerman, I'm Al Galdi. We'll talk to you next time on the Nats Chat Podcast. One
3: ball, one strike, here's the pitch, swing and a fly ball hit well to right center, moving back on a Grisham way back, warning track at the wall, it's gone, goodbye, Alcides Escobar hits a home run to get the Nationals to within a run, his first big league home run since 2018. RBI number six since joining the Nationals, and it's now the Padres six and the Nationals five with one out here in the bottom of the eighth inning. I'm Mark Chapman. Welcome to the Planet Premier League podcast.